0: your mind, I want you to go back with me for just a moment all the way back to a particular scene from the Gospels that we read about that I imagine you're familiar with. But it's the scene where Jesus is standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, the night before Jesus had been arrested, falsely accused, and so now he's being handed over to the Romans because they were the legal authority of the day who were responsible for criminal trial and execution. Now the Jewish council had brought Jesus to Pilate and and the gist of their accusation sort of went along these lines. We found this man misleading our nation, refusing to pay tribute to Caesar, making the claim that he himself is Messiah or Christ, a king. To which, Pilate asks Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews? And in John eighteen thirty-seven, his response is recorded. Jesus says to Pilate, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice to which Pilate asks a follow-up question, what is truth? What is truth? Now the fact is, there's no more an important question that could ever be asked than that question. What is truth? It's a foundational question. It's a question that's asked in every generation. Uh, Various generations of humanity have all wrestled with this very question, including our own time people are wrestling with this question, what is truth? Truth gets at that which is real, or what's expected. And it answers all of those basic questions which characterize our humanity and our existence in the world. Now I want you to take your Bible and turn to a little letter known as 2 John toward the end of the New Testament. And we began really a brief study of both Second John and Third John. I began this last week, a series of studies I've simply given the title, Hold Fast. John writes to believers, and, and in these short little letters, he really tells them to hold fast, be steadfast concerning this issue of truth, especially as it comes under attack really in every generation. If you have a hard time finding Second John, go all the way to Revelation and then just turn two or three pages to the left and you'll be right there. But 2nd John, it's, it's a very brief letter, consists of only 245 words in the Greek text. Third John is a little bit shorter. Uh, it's made up of only 219 words. But though these letters are brief and to the point, they really pack a powerful punch, especially as it relates to this issue of truth and love. And so John writes to encourage believers to hold fast to the truth, all within the expression of love and grace, which sets Christ's followers apart. Hebrews chapter 6 says that God's truth is our sure and steady anchor. And so John is desiring for his spiritual children in the faith to remain steadfast. To, to, to recognize the fact that truth is indeed the anchor that they need in turbulent times. And truth is a word that he uses often in these two little letters. Now, I want you to read with me, beginning with verse 1, and we'll read just through verse 4. The Scripture says, "...the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth." Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. I want to speak this morning from this subject, really the question that Pilate asks What is truth? I believe in these verses, the Apostle John will answer that question for us. And you'll notice that word truth, again, he uses that word five times in just these first four verses. Over in 3 John, he'll use the word uh, an additional uh, 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 seven times for a total of 12 times in these two little letters. So John wants us to know that there is indeed truth for troubled times. And he urges us really to hold fast to the truth, to not take the truth for granted, to be uncompromising when it comes to the truth. Now one thing we've already seen is that his statement, the truth, uh, this puts it in very definable terms, specific terms. He's referring to truth as something which is objective and absolute, And really, that's controversial for our times, because we live in a culture that now says that truth is really relative to the individual, or sort of this relativistic or pluralistic thinking that sort of characterizes our times, which says that all truth claims are equally valid, and no one can rightfully claim the truth. At best, you can have a truth, but you have to recognize that all truth claims are really one and the same. Well, the New Testament says something totally different because the truth is the most important thing that exists. It's the most important fundamental reality in the universe. Now, you think about just how important the truth is in your life as a Christian because it's by means of the truth that you've been saved from wrath. It's by means of the truth that you're being sanctified. In fact, Jesus prayed as much for believers in John 17, where he says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word, Father, is the truth. And so we're, we're saved by the truth. We're being sanctified by the truth. We're edified, comforted, and encouraged by the truth. Aren't you grateful that we don't, we don't gather together this morning to just talk about some ideas which may or may not be true, of which we can't be confident? But I'm glad that I can stand and boldly point you to truth, the truth. And that truth is what will bring comfort and stability to your mind and to your heart. And you need that in life. And so important is truth that when it's all said and done, truth will remain. Jesus said as much in Matthew 24. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my truth will not pass away. Which is why the psalmist could say in Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now. Last week we sort of just looked at what John had to say by way of introduction, and and I sort of just introduced this little letter to you. Uh, John is the elder. His name's not mentioned here, but we know that he's the elder, writing to the elect lady and her children. And so again, I believe this is a reference to a local congregation that he's, he's using sort of metaphoric language here. And and really, it's a reference to his pastoral concern. He's writing to his children in the faith. We know that John has been a pastor. We know that he's pastored the church in Ephesus. And so his concern here is for the truth. Uh, He gets to his purpose there in verse number four, uh, where he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, he'll say the same thing in 3 John, verse 4, when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Now, I imagine that as a parent, you would say that verse means a great deal to you. We would say that there's nothing that brings any greater joy to our hearts as moms and dads or grandparents than to know that our children are walking in the truth, to know that my children are committed to the faith That they don't possess just a second-hand faith, but that Christianity has become real and personal to them. They've personally received Christ as their Savior, and they're personally walking in the truth for themselves. Nothing brings any greater joy to a parent's heart than to know that. Well, the opposite side of the coin probably is true as well. Nothing would grieve our hearts any more than to know that our children are not walking in truth. And some of you perhaps are greatly concerned even this morning over the spiritual state of maybe your, your grown adult children or grandchildren. And that concern is justifiable and understood. But from a pastoral perspective, I can speak as a pastor. There's nothing that brings greater joy to the heart of a pastor than to know that members of his flock are walking in the truth which the pastor preaches. And what a testament it is, and what a testimony it is that points people to the hope of the gospel when we're walking in the truth. And nothing grieves a pastor's heart anymore than when he sees those who are members of his flock who no longer walk according to the truth. And so all of that is really just going on in John's life, and he's writing from a place of deep pastoral concern... And so what he says there in verse number four, perhaps this statement, walking in the truth, maybe that prompts a couple of questions in your mind. One, what is the truth to which John refers? What does he mean when he's being so very specific by referring to the truth? And then secondly, what does it mean to walk in the truth? So two very important questions. What is the truth? What does that mean? And then what does it mean to walk in the truth? Now, we need to answer the first question before we can sufficiently answer the second. And so that's what I want us to do really in our time this morning, is to answer that first question. What is truth? Now, throughout the centuries, the world's leading philosophers and religious leaders, thinkers, they've all tried to answer that question in a variety of ways, and so you can sort of summarize many of their ideas into four different categories. There's some who say, well, truth is what helps you win. Uh, truth is whatever basically puts you on the winning side of an argument. This idea might makes right. Uh, it's, it's, it's the strongest that gets to determine what's true for everybody else. And then you've got some who said, well, truth is nothing more than window dressing. It, it really is just unimportant as far as the the day-to-day affairs of living life is concerned. You just do the best you can and what have you. A third view is that truth is in the eye of the beholder, which is this pluralistic idea that, you know, what's true for you may be true for you, but not necessarily true for me. And so they would say that truth is nothing to argue about One person may go into a museum and see a painting on the wall and say that painting is beautiful. Another person may come along and see the same painting and say that thing is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. And so they would say truth is nothing more than the opinion that one person would hold over and against the opinion of someone else, and all opinions are valid. And then some would say, well, truth is whatever works. Sort of this pragmatism that says truth is what makes me personally happy as an individual. Whatever it is that promotes happiness in my life, whatever it is that, that promotes well-being in my life, this is what is truth for me. And so all of those streams of thought really feed into this postmodern sentiment, which is true of our times, where, where truth is seen as being relative to the individual. Now, that's nothing new. Contrary to what you may think, all of that didn't start with the culture wars of our own time, but the attack on truth goes all the way back to man's days in the Garden of Eden, because there was a serpent who slithered into the garden and whispered the lie into the ear of Eve, has God really said? So that uh, truth is that which has been questioned going all the way back to the very beginning. And so this loss of truth then in today's culture, where folks say, well, truth is really nothing that you can be specific about. It's just what's true for the individual or what's true for society as a whole. Majority gets to decide. The loss of absolute truth, this is a gigantic problem in our time. And the consequences of this are are deadly because, listen, the souls of people are hanging in the balance, men and women. Your eternal destiny is contingent upon your understanding of truth. Now, I came across some, some data from Barna Research from just a couple of years ago, and basically, it said that a full 75% of young adults say that they're unsure of their purpose in life. Uh, if there is a purpose, they don't know what it is, they're, they're concerned, there's just a fogginess there about it. Nearly half of those are said to wrestle with issues of mental illness, including issues of severe anxiety and depression. Now, think about that. That's true of so many in our time. And it's also true that many have been led to believe that there's no absolute value associated with human life. So whether a person agrees to that idea either consciously or subconsciously, the only result of you believing that there's no real absolute value assigned to your life, that can't but lead you to a place of despair at some point in your life to where perhaps you begin thinking that the world literally revolves around you and, and it, it's all about you and what makes you happy. And then when that happiness eludes you, you begin wondering what is real, what is true. Three-quarters of our nation's youngest generation believe that whatever is right for your life or works best for you, this is the only truth that you can know. And so it's this moral relativism that sort of frames the context for those hottest debates that really seem to be raging in our culture. But This basic idea of moral relativism is this, what's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. And then morality becomes dictated by a particular situation in light of a particular culture so that moral values then become a matter of personal opinion rather than being grounded in absolute objective truth. Now, I'll get to the text here in just a second, but I think maybe a glossary of terms might be helpful. So so what do I mean when I refer to absolute truth? Now listen to this. Absolute truth, something that is always right and true whether people agree with it or not. That's what it means when we say that there is absolute truth. God's truth is absolute. It's something that's always right, something that's always true, whether you agree with it or not. As opposed to that, there's the view which sort of uh, characterizes postmodern thinking is that truth is relative. And so a second term then, relative truth, is this idea that life is validated not by a set of principles or some outside objective data but strictly on the basis of some subjective experience, your personal experience, so that you subjectively decide what's true and what's not true, rather than it being grounded outside of you as an individual in something that's absolute and objective. And so you can listen to some key phrases to determine how a person views life and truth and authority. And some of these phrases are a dead ringer to this person's worldview. For example, The phrase, be your authentic self. Or I just do my own thing. Or the phrase, follow your own heart. As Christians, we know it was following our heart. That's what got us into this mess to begin with, going back to Genesis chapter 3. So our understanding then of truth is based upon our understanding of the Bible. We understand God's revealed word to be absolute and authoritative. Now folks, whether we realize it or not, uh, today's generation largely derives its understanding of truth from a culture that says that moral truth is found within the individual. And so the battle then that's being waged for the minds of men and women, especially within the context of the church, it's this battle of whether or not we're going to embrace the biblical narrative about truth or the cultural narrative about truth. Now listen to me. I don't expect the world to get this because the world is in the dark. Uh, The Scripture says that the natural man or woman doesn't understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. The light hasn't been turned on. But I do expect the church to understand this. And so listen, I'm preaching to the church this morning. When, when, When I say that, I want you to hear me. I expect the church to understand what it means to have a biblical worldview, not one that just simply gives lip service to the truth of the Bible, but a Fully or biblical worldview by which you process your life in this world, the Word of God then becomes the lens through which you view the world around you, the filter through which you make your decisions, which determines what you believe and what you don't believe. That's what John is writing about here in Second John when he refers to the truth. But the question is, what story are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the biblical narrative? The biblical narrative says that moral truth is grounded in the character of God, and as such, it's objective and it's universal across the board. That's the biblical story. The cultural story says that moral truth comes from the individual and is therefore subjective and situational. And so this is where a shift has happened so that now even in our post-Christian society to speak of right and wrong in absolute terms, black and white terms, that's seen as our, by our culture as being increasingly intolerant. And so the only absolute in culture today is, is, is tolerance, which is something that means something totally different than it did just a few decades ago. Which, by the way, Christianity is tolerant in the sense of the true term, which means we understand that there are other people who, who, who deeply hold other beliefs. And rather than persecuting those individuals, we, we pray for those individuals, and so we tolerate them. But that does not mean what tolerance has been redefined to mean in today's terms, which now the new tolerance says not only do you uh, uh, affirm the fact that other ideas Exist, but now the new tolerance says you've got to affirm individuals in those ideas and and affirm those ideas as being legitimate to your own, equal to your own. That's the new tolerance. You understand? So that now you can't even express any form of disagreement without it being viewed as being judgmental, oppressive, intolerant. But that's the cultural narrative. And so it's into such a culture, we've been thrust as a church to be salt, to be light, to sort of be an agitator like a washing machine, and to point people to the truth, the truth, as defined objectively in the person of Jesus Christ who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the truth that's been left behind in inspired scripture. All of this is what John is referring to when he speaks of the truth. He's talking about Christianity, not in squishy, undefined terms, but concrete, objective terms, the truth. Now, what is truth? How do we get to the answer of this particular question? Now listen to this. What is truth? Simple definition. Truth is that which corresponds with reality that which is consistent with the mind, the will, the character, and the being of God. True with what corresponds with reality. Reality is what it is because God declared it so and made it so. So that without the objective lawgiver who undergirts and upholds the moral fabric of our universe, you really can't even begin processing your way through life. That's why the scripture says that it's the fear of the Lord which is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. To fully even begin to understand your place in the world, it begins with this understanding of who God is and the fear of God. That's the beginning point of wisdom. Deuteronomy 32.3, I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Listen to this. He is the rock whose way is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Isaiah 65.16 says that he is the God of truth. And so, when Jesus himself declared, I am the truth, he's making a profound statement about his own deity. He says the same thing concerning his word. He says that the scripture is, is uh, it cannot be broken. That speaks to the unchangeable, unshakable truth of God's word. It is this truth that the Apostle John is writing about here in 2 John. Now, I want to give you five statements about truth from what John has written right here in these opening verses. To get at this, an answer to this question, what is truth? All right. so notice number one, John says that truth is objectively defined. He begins by writing, the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. He says the same thing down in verse 4 when he refers to the truth. He says, walking in the truth. So you might could say that he speaks of truth with a capital T. He's referring to something very specific and objectively defined here. Not truth according to the individual or truth by majority. No, this is the truth. That which is grounded in the character of God, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we're referring to the truth. I remember reading where in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was the word post-truth. Now, some of you may have seen that or read that, post-truth. Now, now don't think post-truth in terms of post-war, as in after. That's not how they defined that. They define post-truth this way, it's relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We live in a post-truth society where now what really gets likes and shares and retweets, it's not something that corresponds with the facts per se, but it's, 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 it's some emotional response to some situation because that's how truth is sort of spoken of in in, in post-truth terms. It's, it's, It's emotion, how I feel about a particular issue. This is what's true, whether or not the facts correspond with reality or not. So in other words, truth is what's true for me. My beliefs, my opinions, all of this determine my truth, hence the expression, speak your truth, live your truth. This is a popular slogan of our time. Someone who's written about this a lot is Dr. Albert Mohler, who's the president at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. But he sort of sums up this mindset, this post-truth mindset, as that which says all truth is relative, all truth claims are relativized, and all statements of what might be called traditional or conservative moral judgment are just very well-disguised efforts at oppression. So that now for you to say, well, who are you to speak against my truth? Who are you to disagree? That's now been reinterpreted as a form of attack, oppression. We can't get to the facts now because I can't get past how your argument makes me feel. That's a post-truth reality, folks, that rejects absolutes. And let me tell you, it's a recipe for chaos in society, listen, And it is absolutely irrational to the core. Do you realize that? It leads to nothing but insanity in a person's life, if that's the way you go about living your life. There are certain segments of society, professions, that that depend upon truth uh, that's been woven into the very fabric of the universe. For example, engineers. An engineer is dependent upon truth. Truth matters to an engineer in the world of engineering. Mathematics, two plus two equaling four. Aren't you grateful that truth matters to your pilot when you get on board an airplane? <laughs> what if you got on board an airplane and that thing started taking off and your pilot came across the intercom and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is your pilot speaking just thought that I would tell you I'm going to fly my truth today. And uh, the control tower is telling me to reach a cruising altitude of 32,000 feet. But my truth is telling me we're going to have a nice cruising altitude of 32 feet. And you don't know Jesus in that moment, you begin saying, Lord, I'm just, here I am. To to your hands I commit my spirit. (laughs) Your doctor, your surgeon, all depend upon truth. Your pharmacist, when you go to get a prescription filled, aren't you glad they know how to distinguish the difference between something that's helpful versus something that's harmful and then the right dosage? So if that's true for the physical world, what we would call the laws of physics that apply across the board. God has woven truth into the very fabric of the universe that he's created, which the Scripture says is being upheld by his word of power. Colossians 1.17 says Christ is the wisdom behind all of that. He's the one who's, in him, all things hold together and have their meaning. If there's truth in the physical world, and the laws of physics, don't you think that that applies to the metaphysical world or what we would call morality, spirituality? Why are we so prone to sort of safeguard ourselves from breaking the laws of the physical world? Case in point, you leave today, first thing you do when you get in your car is you're going to put your seatbelt on because you understand the danger of what happens if you break the laws of physics. You're going down the highway 55 miles per hour and you don't have your seatbelt on and your car comes to a sudden halt and you're thrown through the windshield, you know that that's probably the end of your life. But why is it that we're so prone to want to break the laws of God as it relates to morality and spirituality and that kind of thing? Listen, it's because we don't see immediate consequences. And Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. And he says our sin leads us to suppress the truth in our own unrighteousness so that we go our own way because we really want to be the boss of our own lives. First thing that Adam and Eve do after the fall What do they do? They run from God and they hide behind something. That's the default position of humanity now. We're running from God rather than running to Him. And so they sew fig leaves together to try to provide some type of covering that they feel safe behind. And listen, call it whatever you want to, whatever ideology exists, I call it nothing but fig leaves that you try to hide behind because in that moment to you it feels real, when in reality it's not. What you need is the atonement that only God Himself can provide. You need truth, the truth. You need Christ. So truth is objectively defined. Now notice the second thing, John says that truth is absolutely knowable. And isn't that good news? That we can know the truth. Notice he's writing to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So there's this certain confidence that we can live with as those who've come to know the truth, and it's, it's so necessary for you to successfully navigate life in this world. You've, you've got to know the truth. Don't you want to know how God intends, the creator, how he intends for life in this world that he's made, how he intends for it to function. I think sometimes people look at the law of God and they say, well, it's just intended to be repressive and to keep me from having fun. God's this cosmic killjoy. No, let me tell you something. God alone is the one who knows what brings you joy and contentment. And so he gives his law so as to protect us from those very things which would destroy and kill us, the very things that the enemy wants to deceive us over. That's why Jesus said that the enemy is a thief and he's a murderer. He's a liar and the father of all lies. And just like Eve, he'll come alongside you and he'll whisper that lie into your ear. Has God really said? Is God's way really the best way? God's holding out on you. And so many have bought into this lie. And listen, the only alternative, when you you buy into the lie of the enemy, it will set you on a a path toward destruction and death and chaos. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So truth is knowable, truth is defined. Now, notice the third thing. Uh, John says that truth is eternally upheld. He says in verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So a Christian is someone who abides in the truth as well as someone in whom the truth abides and, and the truth remains forever. Long after the lies of Satan have been eradicated from memory, the truth of God will remain. I think about the popular slogans that we hear so often these days, those expressions that we sort of mindlessly repeat and share on social media without really weighing them against the truth. Even slogans that may get at the kernel of truth, but it's sort of perverted and distorted. God just wants you to be happy or love is love, nobody can judge you. See, all those kinds of expressions have become popular because we live in a social media driven uh, world where memes are far more influential than mentors. And it can be difficult to resist the lies of culture which sometimes masquerade as truth and that's why we need to be discerning. That's why John is warning his readers in this little letter. Now somebody who has had a lot to say about this is, is someone whom I've come to respect. Uh, her name is Elisa Childers. And Elisa Childers has written a couple of books, but she was a, uh, she was a, a Christian recording artist. And, and there came a point in her own life, in her Christian walk, where, where she really began to have just a real crisis of faith. And she came under the tutelage of sort of a, a liberal progressive pastor It sort of led her to sort of question and distort the truth, and it sort of set her on a path where she came dangerously close to walking away from the faith. Rather than walking away from the faith, she sort of just began studying the exclusive claims of Jesus. It led her to get into her Bible all the more, and so now she's a leading apologist in our times who's on the front lines defending the faith from all attack. And one book that she wrote that I really have read and just think so much of, it's called Live Your Truth and Other Lies. But listen to the paragraph she writes. She says, more than ever before, people are looking to their own hearts, opinions, preferences, biases, and predispositions to guide them through life. In other words, we've all learned to trust our feelings. But how is that really working out for us? It's leading us to all sorts of problems and in so many cases, didn't we get ourselves into this mess in the first place? She says, today we have authors and influencers and life coach gurus peddling their personal transformation stories as models for others to follow. And their advice is frequently based on very recent life-altering decisions that seem to make them happy in the moment but have not stood the test of time. In some cases, their books come out within a few months of a major life change, divorce, paradigm shift in identity, or spiritual deconstruction, which they think helped them discover their true selves. And often their instructions include throwing out thousands of years of wisdom and hundreds of faithful and godly Bible teachers and replacing them with something or someone they decided to try literally five minutes ago. And we're supposed to follow these people? She says, please do not take life advice from someone who's in the middle of a major crisis. Unless they're gleaning from time-tested, biblical wisdom, pointing you to Christ and not yourself, it would be wise to hit the pause button on that hot mess and just wait and see how it all pans out over the next 10 years or so. Wow! So we're just so intrigued by this novelty. Novelty. Let me give you just a sage word of wisdom here. If it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new. It's wisdom to live by right there. John says that the truth, the truth is eternally upheld. What I need in the depth of my soul is the eternal abiding truth of God. I don't need some narcissistic idea that's telling me to follow my own heart. Nor should I lend my ear to the latest cultural guru who may be all the rave among the Hollywood A-listers, but they wouldn't know their way out of a wet paper bag when it comes to reality. Oh, listen. Listen. Amen, preacher. Listen, amen, amen. (laughs) Jesus said that wisdom, wisdom builds its house on the solid rock of his eternal truth rather than the shifting and the unstable sins of personal opinion or what's culturally in vogue. Because when all the gurus have come to the end of their brief 15 minutes of fame, when it's all said and done, it's nothing but you and your naked accountability before God, the only thing that will matter is the truth and how you responded to it in your own life. How well have you built? Fourth, John says that truth is divinely revealed. Notice he says in verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. This truth that he's describing, truth will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. So he's saying that truth is grounded in the character of God, and as such, it's revealed by him in the person of his Son. It's not a thing that we make up as we go along. It's not something that we invent or determine. I know we live in a democratic society, where democratic ideals are embraced. But, but the thing is, we might have this illusion, <laughs> if we're not careful, that we should have a voice when it comes to the truth or determining what's true. But listen, truth is not some ballot measure. Uh, the universe we live in is not a democracy. God doesn't consult us to determine what's right and wrong. No, he reveals that to us in his own person, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the pages of his sufficient word. And so I'm to go to Scripture to find out what I should and should not believe and build my life upon. That's why the psalmist could say that the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So according to John, truth is objectively defined It's absolutely knowable, it's eternally upheld, it's divinely revealed. Now, one last thing and I'm done with this. John says that truth is personally transformative. It's life changing. It's the truth of the gospel which has led to a major change of life and transformation of character in the lives of those that he refers to as his children in the faith. Now listen to this, he says this in verse three, grace Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son, in truth and love. I'll tell you what he's getting at there. He's getting at a transformation of life that's happened. Has the truth changed you as a man or a woman? Are you someone who's been changed by the truth of the gospel? Grace, mercy, and peace belong to us because of the truth. What is grace? Well, God has been so good to me. He's not given me what I deserve. But rather, he's given to me what I don't deserve. Grace is his unmerited favor in Jesus Christ. (laughs) You want acceptance? You want to find meaning? Listen to me. You'll not find it in the lies of the evil one. And Satan's constantly speaking those lies, and culture buys into those lies. And then you've got this convergence of media and pop culture that sort of reinforce those lies. But all the while, truth is crying out. If it's grace, grace that you so desperately need, thanks be to God, you can find all you need and then some in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve it's a place at the table it's acceptance and forgiveness and he calls me his adopted son and yet that's not all because john says that this experience with truth is, it's been an experience with the mercy of god if grace has god giving me what i don't deserve mercy god's not giving me what i do deserve what do i deserve well i've broken his law i've spurned his truth i've offended his holiness The Bible says the wages of sin is death, therefore I deserve death, but God's been merciful. And that sentence was carried out upon Jesus Christ who died the death that I should have died upon Calvary's cross. So now I've experienced grace and I've experienced mercy and what's the result of this experience? It's peace, peace! What is peace? Peace is being made right with God. Peace means that now that middle wall of partition has been destroyed, and now I can go directly to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what the truth tells me. The truth tells me that I've been made at peace with God, and I've got peace like a river down deep in my soul. And that's what the world so desperately wants, but the world can't have going its own way because following the lies of culture will not lead you to this experience of grace and mercy and peace because it's only the truth that's personally transformative. And then that brings us to John's point in verse four and we'll pick up here later but John says, it brings me so much joy to know that my children are walking in the truth. And walking in the truth implies direction in life Suppose you're lost in a city, but you don't have a compass that points to true north. Or let's say you do have a compass that points you to true north, and then you can begin navigating around that city. You can figure out which direction you're walking, where you intend to go, where you need to go. Let's say you've got that compass, but let's just suppose you've got a magnet in your backpack or in your back pocket that then causes that compass to always point to you. And you're trying to navigate this city, but the compass is always pointing to you. You need a reference point that points away from you or you're always going to be lost. You have no idea which direction you're going. And you may in fact end up walking in circles. Now, folks, that's where the lies of Satan always lead. It's like a magnet where the compass always points to you. So live your truth. That's a compass that's pointing to you. You're going to end up walking in circles like a dog chasing its tail. Follow your heart. That's a compass that's always pointing to you. You're going to be lost. What you need is a true north, and the true north points away from me. It points to Jesus. And that's the navigation system that I need and that you need. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Our time is gone. Boy, John really just gets to the issue, doesn't he? Who would have thought that this letter written two millennia ago in the first century, toward the end of the first century, is so very relevant to where we are in the 21st century. There's a wealth of application here. But he who has ears, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, listen, he's the true north that you need. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. This morning, perhaps you don't know that you're saved and you're confused wondering about what's real and what's not real, what's true and what's not true. Listen, can I just encourage you to look away from yourself and look to Christ in faith. Look to Jesus and be saved. He loves you. He bled and died for your sin. And this experience of grace, mercy, and peace can be yours. A personally transformative experience with the truth of the gospel, this can be yours. Would you come to Jesus today? Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. And God, how we need the true compass of your word so as to navigate these times in which we live. Left up to ourselves, Lord, we're insufficient. I'd be walking around in circles were it not for your truth. But Lord, I'm so thankful that your truth is eternal and abiding, remaining, rock-solid, unshakable, solid ground upon which we build our lives and stake our lives. Lord, as we process decisions, and Lord, I know that there are some folks right now under the sound of my voice who've got some major decisions and some major issues they're walking through. Oh God, may truth prevail in their situation. Our families need the truth. Our marriages need the truth. Our relationships with one another need the truth if we don't have the truth what do we really have may we be a truth telling church always pointing people to Christ and his truth in Christian compassion and so Lord we pray all of this in Jesus name amen